Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, November 5th, we're studying 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 10. St. Paul warns Timothy against false doctrine and those who teach it. Such false teaching does not produce godliness with contentment, but leads toward the love of money, which is a root of all kinds of evils. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us Pastor Kurt Cochran. Pastor Cochran serves at Faith Lutheran Church in Tucson, Arizona. Pastor Cochran, welcome to Sharper Iron. Thank you very much for having me. As we get started this morning, Pastor Cochran, let's talk context. We're near the end of this epistle to Timothy. What has Paul said previously? What do we need to know going into this text today? Well, as your hearers going through with First Timothy, know that this is, of course, authored by Paul, writing to Timothy, um, a young pastor, trying to give instructions for helping him out in the ministry. And as he's gone through a number of topics, qualifications of pastors, um, warnings of some departing from the church and so forth. Uh, now, he, as he does at the end of many of his letters, is kind of wrapping up loose ends, what different things he needs to finished up with. Um, so it kind of turns into a bit of a miscellaneous uh, context. Um, in fact, in the first three or two verses here of chapter six, uh, it doesn't seem to connect as much with what we're going to discuss today. The first two verses were um, regarding the, the duties of masters and servants. And so from there, that's where Paul's going to kind of change topics here, where we begin in verse three. Yeah, the the previous chapter, most of chapter 5 and then those last two verses of chapter 6 are almost like a table of duties sort of section to Paul's epistle. In fact, at least one of the verses from there concerning widows makes it into Luther's table of duties in the small catechism. And now I, I think you're right. He He's basically just starting to wrap things up, tie up loose ends. He's going to, to readdress certain topics that he's already talked about. False teaching has been a big deal for Paul in this epistle, and he's, that's going to come back. The matter of, of riches, some of the more famous words and sometimes misquoted words of the Bible are found in this text. And, and that's been a theme that's come up previously. The, the loving of money has been a matter that concerns qualifications for overseers back in chapter 3. So there are a lot of loose ends that he's going to tie up with this text today. Opportunity to reflect not only on these words, but the epistle as a whole. Just real briefly, and we didn't get to talk about this on yesterday's episode when it comes to 6 verse 2. In the ESV and in the Greek text, the Nestle Allend text that most pastors might have on their desk, they break up verse 2 and they put the last part of verse 2 with verse 3 in one paragraph, teach and urge these things. It almost serves as a bit of a a bridge between that table of duties and what we're going to read today. So that's just mostly for for anyone who's reading along, particularly in the Lutheran Study Bible, you're going to notice that the paragraph starts, as it's translated in the ESV, with that teach and urge these things. And then we get to our text for today. I'll go ahead and read that for us, Pastor Cochran. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 10. Paul writes, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness. 
He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That is our text for today, 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 10. So, Pastor Cochran, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, what's the problem with false doctrine? This is something we've heard Paul address. He's bringing it up again. Why is false doctrine so bad? False doctrine is so bad because it's the opposite true doctrine that instills and increases faith. And so anything that would go against the true doctrine is to have less of what God wants to give and even um, false doctrine coming really from the father of lies, the devil, as in the beginning, um, the devil came to Adam and Eve saying, did God really say? So that's always the devil's primary goal is to twist the doctrine of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that is a pretty clear danger, one that unfortunately we don't take perhaps seriously enough in our world and church today, but nevertheless, it seems to be the primary warning of the scriptures. And uh, as you've mentioned before, all throughout this letter of First Timothy. Yeah, I mean, you, you brought up the father of lies, and that's what Paul said back in the fourth chapter of this letter. He talked about how some depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. It's It's always a helpful reminder to keep that in mind when we talk about false doctrine. This isn't just some sort of neutral thing, but it does come from the father of lies, and he only means harm by it. And so Paul here, again, gives this warning. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, something something different than what Paul teaches, but, but here's—this is just amazing to me, Pastor Cochran. Paul says, mm-hmm. and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ— Paul's telling Timothy, look, if someone's teaching a different doctrine, it's not that they disagree with the Apostle Paul, it's that they disagree with what Jesus says, and that's a pretty dangerous place to be. Absolutely, and um, we think of Matthew 28, where we often title, um, for better or for worse, we title it the Great Commission. Uh, After he institutes baptism in the ministry, with that, he says, uh, teaching them to observe all things that I have given. And likewise, in 1 John, I believe it's 4, uh, test up, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And, and this is how you know the spirit of God. It's every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Mm. So if the devil or any kind of idea comes around to us and tries to especially turn our eyes away from Jesus and towards ourselves inward, then that's something that uh, we need to investigate at the very least, uh, run away, uh, perhaps even as well. Now, Paul Paul gives this a label. He says this different doctrine that wouldn't agree with what's said the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's what's the implication? What's the image in that word sound words? Yeah, that that word sound um, in the Old King James version, which I like to reference a lot, it said wholesome, 
And uh, there's even a footnote in the ESV that I really like as well, which is healthy is another way to translate it. Does not agree with the healthy words. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, then the um, corollary to that, the opposite of that is unhealthy. Um, so that is the rule of faith. Um, that's perhaps a, a term that we don't use as much anymore, but it's one that our fathers used all the time, is that the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, the um, pure doctrine, the clear text of scriptures that establish what we believe, our confession, is the rule of faith by which we can then measure. Uh, think of a ruler measuring. So the rule of faith uh, is what we can use to measure the plethora of ideas that enter into our world. Yeah, that, that that's a good, I mean, the rule of faith, that is a helpful term that we probably should use a bit more often. And, and to you know, use it to measure whether or not it's it's good or right, because as Paul continues, if you if you're teaching a different doctrine, something that doesn't agree with these healthy words, well, then you're missing what he calls the teaching that accords with godliness. Now, this word godliness is one we've looked at a little bit here previously. It's one that that seems a bit unique to this part of the scriptures, these pastoral epistles. What what does Paul have in mind with this teaching that accords with godliness? Yeah, godliness is, might also be translated as faithfulness or even piety, uh, which would be the, the true, sincere worship of God. Um, your life as a Christian in its life of prayer, especially, um, that we are ones that receiving the Lord Jesus Christ, the teaching in our ears, that then that bears itself out in prayer and in good works. And one who doesn't agree with the teaching of Jesus, the sound, healthy words, um, that ultimately leads to the forgiveness of sins, that's a lifting up of the self. So it's not godliness, but it's me meanness. Right. So, I mean, he's popped up. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Pastor go ahead. Cochran. <laughs> uh, sorry, I was just going to say that it kind of ties into the next verse where it says he's puffed up with conceit, this description of a false teacher. Um, that's a real strong one word in Greek that that phrase puffed up with conceit. It's not just kind of proud, but really a super prideful proud, uh, one who just wants to exalt himself. It says he he understands nothing is is one who doesn't agree with those sound words. Uh, it's a, kind of a funny thing that the more a person kind of thinks he knows of his own own mind, own heart, um, when departing from those sound, healthy words, it tends to be the less he kind of actually knows. Uh, so Paul is describing here the fruits of the bad tree of a false teacher. Prior to this series on the pastoral epistles, which we're, we're in right now, we were in the book of Proverbs for a long time. And, and some of Paul's words here remind me of the wisdom that you get in Proverbs about continuing to seek wisdom and how, how fools are those who think they know it all, who are unwilling to listen to destruction, or excuse to instruction, not destruction. But those who are unwilling to listen to instruction do go toward destruction. And it is quite ironic that those who are puffed up with conceit, who think that they know it all, Paul says, in fact, they understand nothing, which does match up very nicely with the wisdom that Solomon spoke in the book of Proverbs over and over again about the need to constantly look to the word for the fear of the Lord, which is where true wisdom is found. To go, I mean, to use the, the Pauline words here, that healthy doctrine, those sound words of Jesus, that's where wisdom is found. And when you forsake that, all you have left is yourself and your own wisdom, which 
turns out to just be foolishness and you end up understanding nothing. It's a rather, it's rather ironic and it's, it's very, it's very sad ultimately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it also then produces this, this list of characteristics that just eat away at a person, eat away at a community, um, this envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction. I mean, Paul really is hammering in here uh, what to expect when you begin to depart away from that sound, healthy teaching. Hmm. Now, before we get to that that list, the envy, dissension, etc., Paul says that this false teacher has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. This is something that I, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding within the church today as as to what exactly this means. I mean, we we just got done talking at the very beginning about how important true doctrine is. And perhaps someone would level the accusation at us, Pastor Cochran, Pastor Apple, y'all are the ones that are causing controversy. You're saying everyone else is wrong. <laughs> you're right. I mean, you're you're the ones at fault here. You you're the one that, you know, you just want to fight with people. What, what's Paul, I mean, how do, how do we answer a charge like that? How do we rightly understand these words from Paul? Right, well, to use this text in such a way as to say that we should never have even debate or discussion, maybe a better word, uh, in the church about the doctrine. Like you said, it would just simply go against verse 3, that, well, if there is a sound doctrine, that means that there is an unhealthy doctrine, and therefore we need to actually talk about what is the difference between that which came from Jesus and that which is an innovation, is an invention even from the devil himself. So there are disagreements. The question then is which questions, which show topics are worth actually debating. And it's worth taking note. What is Paul actually trying to warn Timothy about with this unhealthy craving for controversy, this quarreling about words, and perhaps where have we seen it in the past, um, that we, how, let, let's, let's think on this, where, um, I mean, there's just so many things in the Bible that we find as head scratchers that we're really not given kind of the full picture on, and that's okay. God gives us what we need to know, and then he sometimes just leaves it off there. Uh, And this can cause Christians studying the Bible to get a little bit antsy about that, that God just kind of gives a little bit, but doesn't get the whole picture. I got a couple examples here. Like, for example, uh, when it says Enoch walked with God, uh, we assume, I think rightly, that that means that he was assumed into heaven uh, without having dying first. And that's all the text says about it. So the people who might want to take that and, and speculate, why is it? and maybe go down some roads that might not accord with that sound doctrine, the rule of faith. They might actually even contradict the scriptures at different places. I think that's the unhealthy craving, that sick craving that uh, for controversy. Um, in the Greek, that the expression unhealthy craving for controversy is actually all one word, uh, which is nosone, which was where we get the word nauseous, that a false teacher has a sick kind of lust for for disputing and being contentious and cantankerous. And so we got to be careful that we are, in fact, um, keeping our debates in the church, um, pastor to pastor, even uh, lay people incorporated into this, these discussions as well, that we're talking about the things that actually have to do with salvation, 
and even if it's just a little bit to do with salvation. When it comes to things like Enoch or perhaps uh, why it wasn't until after the flood that God allowed man to eat animals, like these kind of smaller questions that we get from the Bible, um, if we keep it on topic and don't be especially contentious about it, I think that's what the what Paul is trying to exhort us here. So from from those who do from the side of those who do care about true doctrine, then the the warning of these words would be to keep the main thing the main thing and don't get into unnecessary controversy over places where the scriptures I don't want to say they're unclear, but there's there's some because the scriptures are clear. That's one of the attributes of the scriptures is that they are clear. But there are places where it's hard to know exactly. Well, there's there's texts that are more clear, and there are some texts that are not as clear as you as you mentioned. Or an, another one that comes to mind since you brought up the book of Genesis is, who are the Nephilim in Genesis yeah. chapter six? <laughs> right? There's there's these places where we honestly have to say, I'm not sure. Or it was just recently mm-hmm. where where someone asked me, Pastor, what is the word? Sela or Sela mean in the Psalms? And I said, well, that's one mm-hmm. of those words where we just don't know what the Hebrew means. Ultimately, there's some good guesses, but we don't know. And so, you know, if, if we were to get into some sort of like church dividing controversy over what the word Sela mean, that would be to fall into the type of quarreling that Paul has here. So that would precisely, be precisely right. Oh, go ahead. If yeah. you want to respond, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's precisely the case, and that uh, kind of jumping off on what you're saying about the attributes of scripture and, and the clarity and so forth, uh, it's something to, to keep in mind that the Holy Spirit, of course, wrote all of the scriptures and he wrote it intentionally just as he wanted it to be. And he purposefully then gives us specific clear scripture texts by which we can take the true doctrine from and by which we can measure everything against. But he also gives to us more obscure text and the obscurity isn't in the fault of the Holy Spirit. Right. But rather, the, the obscurities are to kind of keep us going, keep us having sharper iron discussions yes. uh, that allow us to uh, dig deep into the mysteries of the, the kingdom of heaven. And that really does help us once you kind of dig into obscure parts of the scriptures. Um, so it's not that all of the scriptures are per se clear, but rather what we need to know for salvation is clear. We rely on those texts. And then the rest of the text of scripture, say the Nephilim, these questions of what Selah means and so forth, uh, we just got to keep in mind that they shouldn't ever contradict the clear scriptures and the doctrine that comes from them. So that's just the nuts and bolts, I think, on the, the attributes of scripture, what you were, you were saying there. Yes, that's that's very well clarified for, for what I was getting at. Very, very well said. So that would be from the perspective of those who care about true doctrine and want to hold on to false doctrine, that we wouldn't slip into that. Now, looking at it, though, from the perspective of those who are false teachers, I think there may be another another way of, of seeing this or another another angle that Paul's getting at. So if, I'm, if I care about true doctrine, I don't want to let these things trip me up. I want to hold on to what's true, those clear texts that reveal to me what God teaches concerning my salvation. If I'm a false teacher, I think that's precisely what they're going to start calling into question. So they, they would use maybe— what you and I are talking about, saying we're not going to you know, divide over what the word Selah means. They would use that then to throw into question those very clear things. And, and so to, to ask, for example, within this own letter, well, you won't ordain women. 
And, and that's just a foolish controversy when the text is pretty clear there in 1 Timothy 2, or, or even more foundational than that. And, and here, this is where I think the small catechism is so very helpful. Those things that are taught to us in the catechism, those are the things that there simply is no controversy. There is no quarrel there. And for someone who really loves that quarrel, they might try to throw questions onto those things that would call into question what God has actually given. And Paul says, look, there's just no place for that. Those who want to do that, they just want to fight, but there's really no fight there because God has very clearly said those things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. That's why Luther wrote the small catechism is to especially have the for the lay people the ability to hear a priest and to know whether or not he's given them the truth. If it accords with the small catechism, which they've learned, then they know they can keep on listening. If not, then they can um, stand apart, um, avoid them for the sake of their soul, for the sake of hearing only the truth and not being misled. Right. And I, I think, I mean, just to, the the reason I wanted to bring that out is so that we would recognize I mean, we started this conversation as like, well, sometimes we have to fight for true doctrine. Sometimes we, we're going to say, well, we just don't know. How do you know which is which? And, and I'm looking at your notes here, Pastor Cochran, and, and you've got the word humility in there. And, and I think, I think that's, that's the key, is that where God has spoken clearly, humility means saying amen to that and no to anything that contradicts it. And where God has given us those more obscure texts, as you said, humility is to say, we're just not sure exactly what that says, but we know what it says over here, and we're going to hold onto that. Amen. Let it be so. Yeah, it can sometimes get thrown at, at Lutherans that uh, you guys are so prideful in thinking that you have it all figured out, and you especially won't sway even a single little bit from your Lutheran confessions and so forth. And and in, in one sense, I can see where they're coming from, because if I were to say that, say, I have the right doctrine of baptism because I'm so smart that I've just simply figured it out, then that would be a rather arrogant thing, even if it's figuring it out, say, from the scriptures. But instead, we simply say we have the right doctrine of baptism, Lord's Supper, what have you, because God's spoken clearly. And so that's actually humbly submitting to the clear words of Jesus. And if somebody were to oppose that, um, when it comes to fighting, of course, we're not going to throw punches and we're not going to um, you know, get the guillotine out or something like that. We're going to speak and argue with our words, not in a combativeness way, as Paul says, to rebuke with gentleness, Galatians 6.1. Um, rather, we're, but we're going to speak the truth clearly in love and gentleness, but very much clearly, mm. lest Paul or God himself be uh, blasphemed and then the people less comforted. Yeah, you, you talked about lest God be blasphemed. And and in your notes as well, Pastor Cochran, you've got a connection here between the second and the eighth commandments. And actually, we talked a little bit about this yesterday when it when it came to the matter of charges against those who serve as elders and, and how certainly we look to protect reputations in the eighth commandment. But then also there's the matter of the second commandment, the teaching of the truth of God's word, keeping the name of God holy. You say it's that connection is here, again, maybe in a slightly different way. Within our text today, where do we see the second and eighth commandments come together? Right. Well, we've already solved the second commandment. Um, when you think of, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, uh, we should fear and love God so they do not curse, swear, you say, tenor guards, lie. 
or deceive by his name, which is to say to speak falsely about God and about his word is a breaking of the second commandment. And so that's what we've been talking about, verses three and four, uh, the first half of four. But then it's a fascinating thing of these fruits of unhealthy doctrine come envy. Think of envy. That's really ninth commandment, 10th commandment. Mm -hmm. Dissension, uh, similar, um, perhaps touching a few different commandments. But then check these two out, slander and evil suspicions. Now, when we think about sins, sins being of thought, word, and deed, as we often say at the beginning of the divine service, um, sin against the second commandment, sin against the eighth commandment, to speak or to do a sin against the second or eighth commandment, that's really kind of one and the same. Uh, but to think a sin against the eighth commandment would be to kind of assume the worst on somebody, or to put it as Paul put it there, the evil suspicion. So slander, very clear verbal, even doing against the eighth commandment, and even evil suspicions, a thought sin against the eighth commandment, comes out of one who is combativeness in fighting and in these, uh, what was the controversies and for quarrels about words, that Greek word quarrels about words uh, is only one word in the Greek, which means to simply word fights, uh, a word fight about God. And especially if you're on the wrong side of it with God can only produce then evil suspicions and slander against one that you're debating with. Um, so it's just a nasty thing to fall on the wrong side of the truth of God that we should just simply humbly submit to his word and where he speaks clearly. Hmm. And even larger than that, the connection between the second and eighth commandment is there, but the larger connection of the first table of the law as to how we love God and the second table of the law, how we love neighbor, those two things go together, particularly in the place where Paul got this whole conversation started, the matter of false doctrine. I mean, we talked about why is, why is false doctrine such a big deal? Because it comes from the father of lies, and it would draw us away from the way, the truth, and the life, who is Jesus Christ. But not only that, it also bears fruit in our lives. That false doctrine that I believe is actually going to affect the way I treat my neighbor in a very negative way. And sometimes we we forget that connection, but Paul draws it very plainly here. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's almost as though God who created us in his image, and as we in the garden then lost the image, that this means that we're actually going to not get along. <laughs> That's right. uh, because we are, we are no longer in perfect communion with God, therefore we're not going to be in perfect communion with the other people whom God created until it is put back together again, um, through the redemption of Christ and giving us his image in baptism, then we can not only just put up with each other, have kind of a, a harmony, but we can actually have true unity, true love and affection for one another. When we put Christ at the center, whenever we um, are seeking together the truth that comes from Christ, the truth who is Christ, and he who is Christ brings us into himself through his means of grace, that this then brings us together into the Holy Christian communion. Hmm. True doctrine, sound doctrine matters for your life as a Christian and your Christian church. You're listening to Sharp Iron here on KFUO. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, November 5th. We're looking at 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 10. We've got Pastor Kirk Kurt Cochran with us. He serves at Faith Lutheran Church in Tucson, Arizona. Pastor Cochran, prior to the break, we were looking at verses 3 and 4, and in verse 5, it seems that Paul starts to make a bit of a transition. What do we see the transition that he starts to turn a corner a bit in verse 5? Yeah, it's kind of helpful to break up verse 5 into a first half and second half, where the first half, it says, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Remember that this is connected to really verse four and three, uh, kind of one thought block where Paul is describing false teachers and what happens, the bad fruits of the bad tree of a false teacher. It causes constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Uh, and then it says, imagining that godliness is a means of gain, which that's a kind of a different block that will keep on a different thought that will keep on going. So it's, I, I kind of like at first when it's saying uh, depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. That's something that really only comes out in English. That wordplay is, is kind of nice, depraved, deprived, that a person, this is really a false learner uh, or a, one who's being deceived by a false teacher is depraved. That is to say, becoming corrupted by the unhealthy teaching that comes from the father of lies, uh, by which we would want to watch out for, and, and even in health. We'll, we'll get to that in a second as far as the false learners. Uh, but then deprived, these are people who are starved for comfort in the, the, the pure gospel. And so Paul is really in love, caring for people, uh, say the churches in Galatia, Corinth, Corinth where the Judaizers, um, the circumcision party would come in and and twist them, and then un, they would just undo the gospel, and this would then lead to people being uh, misled sheep, um, sheep that are being feasted on by wolves. And it's important to keep in mind here that as Paul is speaking so fiercely, he's speaking fiercely against the false teacher. And this is important because I think we should, especially you and me, uh, Pastor Apple, as pastors, we should make a, a fine distinction between those who are false teachers and those who are hearing false teachers or false learners. The false teacher, Jesus describes pretty clearly with being a wolf, a wolf in sheep's clothing. But a false learner, one who by circumstances of life maybe just happens to find himself learning at the feet of a false teacher, well, that that person is lunch as a, to the wolf um, and or a hurt sheep. And so there's an expression that I've taken up that I really like, which is kick the wolf, tend to the hurt sheep. And of course, kick, we really mean speak the truth in a perhaps more fiercer, sterner way. And because they are in fact hurting sheep that we would then want to tend to, they are depraved and deprived. Mm-hmm. 
then from there it goes to, unless you want to comment on that well no, I, I just to reiterate that this is an important distinction that we should make and particularly for pastors because it and maybe it's because of the the theological training that we've received and that's a good thing it's it's by no means bad but because of that I, I think there's a tendency I know I see it in myself there's a tendency to see anyone who speaks anything that has the hint of false doctrine my gut reaction is to see that person more as a false teacher when in all likelihood I need to probably see them as as a false learner rather than the wolf the that's who's who's attacking I should I should see the person who is who's been depraved and deprived that these things have been done to them and they need healing they need the balm of the gospel they need to to be shown the truth so that they are no longer a false learner and, and because it's just it's very easy and maybe this is just me speaking from from my own this confession it's just easy to, to jump on false doctrine as if I'm jumping on a wolf when in fact there are times probably more often than not where I need to to react as one who is who's been taught falsely not actively teaching falsely and, and that's a it's an important distinction for pastoral care and it's, it's probably also true for for every Christian as well in terms of our interactions with people, this goes, I think, to the Eighth Commandment and and assuming the best about people. How does it put the best construction on it, explain everything in the kindest way, that I I ought to start by assuming that they're a false learner and then take the time to discover if they're actually a false teacher and treat them accordingly in each circumstance. Yeah, and I wasn't planning, I didn't put this in my notes, I wasn't planning on speaking to, to this, but um, I pray daily um, from the TLH agenda. It's called a pastor's daily prayer. And there's a particular paragraph that really puts all of this beautifully. Uh, It says, uh, and since hypocrites and ungodly people are often found within the visible church organization, I pray you do not permit Satan to disrupt this congregation through such or to hinder the efficiency of my office. And it's pretty straightforward there. Um, And then there's this though, if there is such in our midst, let your word be like unto a hammer upon their hearts of stone. And I'm going to pause for a moment and say that it's at this point in time where you might say, um, just pray that God would just get rid of them. Uh, but instead it says this, it says, have patience with them. Mm. But if they persist in their unbelief, hypocrisy, and wickedness, reveal them so that they may be put forth from your congregation. And then at that point in time, maybe moving on, but it actually returns to the patient aspect of it. It says. Give me a forgiving heart towards all, and to help me, especially for their sake, to speak and act cautiously, always keeping in mind that that person, even if he's a wolf and a very intentional false teacher, still a wolf whom Jesus died for and who very well could have the heart of stone softened by the law. So we ought to kind of treat our even the wolves of our in our midst um, with a particular care, knowing that they very well could uh, have a repentance that leads to forgiveness. Right. Well, that's that's always the goal, is the repentance. We talked about that yesterday, where, again, where Paul charges Timothy about those who are persisting in sin, and and the goal is always repentance. And that's that's true for those who are false learners and for false teachers. And we should never forget that end goal of repentance and holding on to those sound words, those words that bring health and life in our Lord Jesus Christ. So as, as Paul continues here in verse 5, 
those who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, what's going on? They're imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And, and with this, Paul, it's, it's like he uses this as almost a bridge between these two sections. He's going to start talking more about this. What's the, the move that Paul's making here? Yeah, the, the move goes from being false doctrine, second commandment, we've spoken about the eighth commandment, but now I'm going to get moving into money and seventh commandment, you shall not steal, trying to help other people um, increase their possessions rather than the temptation for ourselves to, by greed, increase our own possessions, our own gain. And that's the gain that Paul's speaking of is a financial gain. Imagine that godliness, faithfulness is a means to an end of more money. He's got in mind simply the prosperity gospel, um, the false prosperity teachers um, who, quite honestly, they themselves want the money and they know that people want money. So if you can teach people to believe harder and pray more, then you'll be rewarded with health, wealth and and happiness. And people flock to that message. That's part of the, the itching ears message that Paul will speak about in Second Timothy uh, having itching ears that people, they want to hear that that if they do something special with God, then that can help them to increase their their income. So this is where Paul is going to be going to after this. And, and uh, we'll go real quickly in verse six there, the first expression, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So notice the the switch there that's going on. Godliness in and of itself does not lead to the increase of riches, but faithfulness, when you add in contentment, is a great gain. And what he's got in mind there is a heavenly gain, a spiritual gain, a true treasure, as opposed to the false money, the mammon that we have in our world. Uh, it's just a beautiful little juxtaposition there. Before we get too far down that road, very briefly, Pastor Cochran, there is a, a textual note here that we should make at the end of verse 5, something that's in the King James Version that you won't see in the ESV or the NIV. Uh, what's what's there that we should notice? Yeah, it's uh, very fascinating. It kind of takes me off guard. Like I said, it's, it's helpful if you are just an English speaker, if you don't know any other language, um, to have next to you the King James Version as you're reading through the ESV, mostly because the King James Version uh, relied heavily upon this family of manuscripts there at the time of the, the formation of the New Testament, known as the Textus Receptus, or sometimes called the Majority Text. And the King James Version really relied on that. But then our modern tr English translations, they've kind of gone away from that family, which then leaves out sometimes some parts that even our ancestors would know from the King James Version. So it's right in between verse 5 and 6, at the end of verse 5, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. It says, stand apart from these, these referring to the false teachers. And, and I looked this one up in particular about the, the testimony, just how many copies there were and whether um, it kind of is mm, half and half. It could be there, could not be there. And, and this one's pretty consistently uh, attested to in the ancient world, the, the Greek copies were were pretty prevalent. And I'm personally, uh, text criticism is not my strong suit, uh, but I have come to have a bit of a skepticism on some of the modern assumptions that we have when we approach the, the manuscripts in the text. And 
uh, I tend to give a little bit more gravity to that King James Version, Textus Receptus. And that one in particular, stand apart from these. It fits well with what we were speaking about with the false teachers, but it also matches well with, say, Romans 16, 17, where it says, Paul says to the Romans, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. And it says, avoid them. Or in the next um, letter to Timothy, Paul will say, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Because false teachers are ones who are leavens of a, of a lump. That is to say that they can really mess things up even for a congregation or for a church body as a whole uh, and ought to be watched out for. So I, I think that that might even be a modern mm, dislike, you might say, of this particular expression that might have left to it being kept out of the, the text that you were probably looking at if you're following along with the ESV or the NIV. So plug for the old King James Version here. <laughs> so so stand, stand apart from the false teachers, which certainly fits with everything that Paul has said. It does fit canonically as a warning that's given elsewhere. Stand apart from those who would imagine and teach that godliness is a means of gain. So having laid out that false teaching from which a true teacher ought to stand apart from, now Paul is going to give the true teaching. And he does so just by adding that that small phrase, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. What is it about the contentment being added to godliness that now brings great gain? And again, what what is that gain? Yeah, contentment um, is, oh man, such a wonderful virtue. Uh, And it kind of simply means I have everything that I need. Uh, So therefore, God be the glory. I am okay with my life. I mean, so much of the, of what we are reading about in the paper and the the news, Facebook and so forth with this election season is who will give us more stuff? Who will Mm. be the one who ushers in more prosperity to our country? And you can kind of see why Christians are getting a little bit of a bad rap lately, because Christians are the ones that are coming back and saying, you know, there's more to life than the abundance of possessions. Um, It's almost as though Jesus himself said that. Um, (laughs) There is more to life than the abundance of possessions. There are heavenly treasures, and that is of the highest gain uh, when it comes to our relationship to God, and and what Paul will continue here going forward with with, uh, helping us with. So the the grounds that he gives then for this in verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Sounds a lot like the book of Job. Yeah, absolutely. It was at the end whenever, um, I think it's in between his times where he first had all the stuff taken away, and then the second um, wave of affliction came and he had all this family taken away. Or no, no, then he had his body afflicted. That's right. Uh, so it was after he had all of his family, all of his stuff taken away, his wife comes to him, criticizes, saying, curse God and die. Um, and he makes this great expression of faith. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And part of just growing up, growing older, um, and, and having people that you followed when they were younger, um, people who were kind of in their prime, their heyday, you thought nothing could ever touch this person. This person's almost invincible. Um, and then as you 
go along, you see them getting older, they're not in the media, they're in the news as much, and then all of a sudden you hear about this person breaking news, this person who you thought was immortal, invincible, has died. And when you think about all of the riches, all of the fame that had that this person had in his prime, all of a sudden has nothing. And I think that's part of perhaps what you've gone through in Proverbs in the past. Um, part of godly wisdom is to recognize that ahead of the fact about yourself, that you know what, if the Lord gives me food and clothing, which is the next verse, verse eight, with these, we will be content. Because if we have not just food and clothing, but if we have our baptism, if we have the Lord's Supper, if we have the Holy Spirit, if we have all of the treasures, the spiritual treasures that people kind of, for lack of a better way of putting it, (laughs) poo-poo, that we uh, just perhaps not elevate enough. But if we have these in addition to the simple food and clothing that allows us another day of being in God's kingdom on this earth while we're serving other people, and then, you know, we're, we're going to be with the Lord where we will have the kingdom of heaven and, and paradise. Mm-hmm. So we ought to be just simply careful about how greed can tempt us. Mm-hmm. A lot of what Paul writes here reminds me of several things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He, he talks about where, where are you storing up your treasure? Are you storing it up here on earth where moth and rust destroy and decay and where thieves break and steal? Or, or are you storing it in heaven where, where those things don't happen, where moth and rust can't destroy, where thieves can't break in and steal? And he connects that to the matter of the heart. And, and of course, he uses you know that very, very famous, he talks about money. You can't serve two masters. You'll either hate one and love the other or despise one and serve the other. You can't serve God and money. I mean, so so there, you know, now we're not just talking about second, seventh, eighth commandments. We're talking. This is the matter of the first commandment. They all they all come back to that one. Who is your God? And and that's how I mean. That's how I can be content is by knowing who God is, and what He has given me. And of course, there. I mean, we we just covered the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer in my youth confirmation class here. We were talking about this. We read a good chunk of Matthew six where Jesus talks about food and clothing and and how well God feeds the birds who who aren't building little bird barns and how well God clothes the grass of the field which is gone tomorrow and if he does that for those then then how much more is he going to do it for me whom he loves and and so I'm free then to seek his kingdom first and let him give to me my daily bread it's such a I mean, it's such a freeing thing contentment which is the gift that God gives in the ninth ninth and tenth commandments is really such a such a precious gift, one that we probably don't value nearly as much as we should, but it's such a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that expression, um, seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you, kind of almost can't be repeated enough, especially as for courage in this life, because mm-hmm. there are times in our lives where being faithful, doing the right thing is hard. It's a risk even. Uh, you're almost, in a sense, taking a plunge where doing the wrong thing, there's a little bit more worldly assurance that you might have more financial gain. But to do the right thing, seeking the kingdom of heaven, has the promise that God will take care of you. And that is everything. So to use a very tangible example, and one that's kind of safe, I haven't dealt with this, I've only heard about it, is that there is a great temptation, especially for more elderly folk, and I don't know the, the logistics with the state quite well enough, for a couple, either widow, widower, 
they find each other and there are particular tax benefits or social security benefits, disability benefits that would, if they got married, would actually um, decrease their total income between the two. So there's a temptation there for them to live together, be together, act like they're married, but not never actually go to the state, contract, and um, uh, tell the state that we're married because then that would lead to less income. Well, seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and these things will be added to you is an encouragement that the right thing to do is to get married, to match up what we have in the scriptures of marriage to what is actually happening in the union, to do it and take the sacrifice of the, the lesser income. And, you know, you don't want to make guarantees on a worldly standpoint, but with regards to God, he's going to take care of you. It's going to be okay. So that's just kind of one example. You might have a, a better example. <laughs> well, and I mean, there's, I think there's tons of examples we could, we could think through where seeking after God's kingdom and righteousness might lead to losing something in this life. And yet that godliness with contentment, that's, that's the gain that Paul has for us. So, and we've, we've only got about six minutes here and I want to make sure we get to these last two verses, at least in part. So, I mean, Paul, Paul says those who desire to be rich fall into temptation he talks about, in verse 10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils, right? I mean, this is a, a very commonly misquoted verse. I think it's, it's often money is the root of all evil. That's not what the verse actually says. The love of money <laughs> is a root of all kinds of evils. So, I mean, Pastor Cochran, is it is it wrong to be rich? And and while you answer that, though, help us make sure we don't fall off too far and ignore the temptation that is there in this desire to be rich. Right. So he's not, um, let's see here. It's not merely being rich, but rather it's desiring to be rich or even being afraid of losing your riches mm -hmm. that Paul is exhorting against and that the scriptures exhort against that. Um, if you of course have abundance of possessions, if the Lord has blessed you with that, and you're giving thanks to the giver of all good things, you're exalting God um, in true thankfulness as the, the one who has blessed you so. And quite honestly, you're giving a good amount of it to the church and to charity. That's not what Paul is saying is, is bad. That's a very good thing. But rather, it's when you make your life about possessing more, about desiring to have even more and more and more. That's that love of money that is the root of all kinds of evils and um, what we ought to watch out for. So, and that expression, love of money, yeah, I, I heard it quite a bit growing up, you know, money is the root of all evil. And so people would kind of use that to help people to, I guess, take up a vow of poverty. I don't know, but no, the, the right way of, of thinking about it is the love of money. When you make your fear, love, and trust in money, mammon above all things, as opposed to that fear, love, and trust in God that we ought to have of all things. And then learning Greek uh, and investigating this text for our conversation today allowed me to dig even deeper into that love of money. And, and I found a fun little thing with it. It's actually one word. I was expecting for the agape of, of money um, to come up in the Greek, but it's actually one word. It's uh, philos. And I didn't, of course, have the, that Greek word right here in front of me, but it's philos money uh, or philos silver. It's one word, literally like a silver friend. Mm. <laughs> and and I think that's fascinating for becoming a friend of silver is a root of all kinds of evil. 
uh, which really works well with what Paul says in these last two verses here, uh, that it doesn't just hurt you eternally to desire and to love money, but even hurts you in this life, that you pierce yourself with many pangs as you make your silver your friend. Well, don't be surprised if you then lose true friends who recognize that, you know, if you're going to just simply pursue money, I can go and and be with other people. Uh, and so that's a money is a very powerful driver for people in lust after um, selfish gain that, that people ought to be careful for in the, oh man, the imagery that Paul gives here is just um, rich. Yeah, no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> he plunges, money plunges people down into the depths of ruin and destruction. My goodness, um, isn't that just something we would want to avoid? Uh, so <laughs> while you're seeking the uh, the gifts of God, while you are working and receiving the clothing and the food, the house, home, all the things that we pray about in the first article of the creed and in the fourth petition, that you're recognizing that, you know what? I've got my food. I've got my clothing. If I don't have that additional bunch of money that I wish I kind of did have in my old Adam, I'll be okay. Yeah, yeah. I, and I mean, as you, you're talking about that, this idea of plunging into this and all that, well, what stands in contrast to that to try to sort of tie these things together? It's those healthy words, the sound mm-hmm. doctrine. It, where where is true Where is true wealth? Where are true riches? It's found in that sound doctrine. Where's the health? It's it's found in the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, which give us the true faith, the right love toward God, and also the true life, the the love toward the neighbor and the proper use of what God has given. I think that that really helps tie that together. These these beautiful images that Paul gives, very very strong images, but words images that all point us back to that true teaching that sound doctrine, the healthy words of our Lord Jesus Christ in which we have salvation. Pastor Kurt Cochran is the pastor at Faith Lutheran Church in Tucson, Arizona, helping us this morning with 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 10. Pastor Cochran, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. Sound doctrine, healthy words of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what gives us life, such that godliness faith toward Jesus with contentment. This is great gain. What we have in this life, what God gives is enough. It is a gift from his fatherly hand for which we give thanks, knowing that he has given us the kingdom in his son, Jesus Christ. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.